It is in this fourth chapter of the book of Samuel that we first witness people dying in the book. We've seen life, we've seen Samuel being brought into the world. We haven't read of anybody dying, but now in this chapter we do. And not only is there dying in this chapter, there's a lot of it. This is a chapter of death. Death is in the detail of this fourth chapter. We don't take long going into any history book before we read of death, just as we don't take long on the path of life before we learn of death. We see and hear people dying pretty quickly as we begin the path of life. We're usually still children when we witness it, and it is quite a shock for us. And it's not something we forget. It's a lot to take in when you learn of people dying around you when you're little. It makes us think. Even when we're only beginning to live, it makes us think. And dying should always make us think. And this chapter tonight should certainly make us think. But while we all die, we don't all die the same way. Death is the same, but dying is different. Now most deaths in this chapter are violent and bloody because they're deaths in war. War is not glorious congregation. Even when it might be necessary, it's never glorious, for it makes the blood of men to flow like a river. At the first battle of Athak here, in verse 2, we read that the Philistines slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And then the next encounter is seven times that and is called in verse 10 a very great slaughter for their fail of Israel 30,000 footmen. That's thousands that are made widows, thousands that are made fatherless, thousands removed and the creation mandate to multiply and fill the earth slowed down yet again. War is a plague, a plague that has claimed more lives than most diseases. And war affects the church, just as it affected Israel here. It affects the church both directly and indirectly. And we should pray, therefore, as the Bible exhorts us for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may have peaceable lives, that we might not know war, terrorism and atrocities and awful deaths by mass slaughter. We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We should pray for the peace of the nations. You remember whenever the captives were brought into Babylon, God said, seek the peace of the city where you go. Pray for the peace of the land where you are captives. Where I've caused you to be carried away. Pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof. You shall have peace. And we need to be reminded about this. Brethren and sisters. Because warmongering is on the rise again. So let's pray. For the peace. So we don't have to send our, our children. Our grandchildren. To be slaughtered. And to just make figures and numbers without any identity here 
just a number and a figure. May God spare us then from the grief of warfare, for that is more grief to a nation than any virus ever could be. So while there are many deaths in this chapter, as I said, the slain are just in the main numbers. No names, no identification, no faces, no personalities, no knowledge of whether they were good or bad. There are, however, four persons that are identified. Four that the Holy Spirit has focused in upon that we know something about their deaths in detail. The Holy Spirit emphasizes these persons in the text. There are two at the end of the first half of the chapter and there are two at the end of the chapter itself. In verse 11, there are Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli. We read that they were slain. And then in the next half of the chapter, we read of the death of Eli and the death of his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas. They are paired together. Hophni and Phinehas in the first half on the battlefield where they're slain. And then Eli and the daughter-in-law paired together in Shiloh where they die. You'll notice that there is a remarkable difference in the description of these deaths. The first pair just get a very short description. The sons of Eli were slain, Hophni and Phinehas. But the other pair, they get a large description that runs into many verses. So there's not much said about Hophni and Phinehas in regard to their death. Very simply described, just says they were slain. The war ends with their death. The story at Afak ceases with the reading of them lying slain on the battlefield. Now we must keep in mind that these are apostate ministers of God that were slain. Who were standing beside the very ark, who were the guardians of the ark, probably at the time that they were slain, around the ark. They were cut off. Not just by the Philistines. They were cut off by God. That's what the Bible teaches. God himself predicted it. You remember how the prophet of God came to Eli and said, This will be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them, as if together, cut off. God predicted it. He not only predicted it, he determined it and decreed it. And that's why he was predicting it, because he had determined it. God doesn't just see the future. God determines the future. And what he determines from time to time, he, he lets us know something about. And we call that prophecy or prediction. He did determine it because the Holy Spirit says that Whenever Eli rebuked these two sons, they didn't listen. And the reason why they didn't listen was very simple. Because the Lord would slay them. The Lord would slay them. And then whenever Samuel heard the message, he said, I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his 
house. When I begin, I will also make an end. I'll go right to the end. So it's determined. God's going to begin to deal with these lads and he's going to go right to the end until they're slain and the whole house of Eli is dealt with. In fact, God said, I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house. They were cut off. These two men are bad men. They did wickedly. They're not children of the Lord. The Holy Spirit calls them the children of Belial. They belong to the devil. They're the seed of the serpent. Though they were ministers' garb. They apostatized. They made Israel to sin. They treated the sacrifices abominably. They caused people to despise giving their offerings to God. To despise the sacrifices. And they refused to repent. And they went on stubbornly in their wickedness. They were men of the flesh, committed adultery and uncleanness, and they abused sacred things, and they were most brutal in their behavior, violent even. And let's not forget the privileges they had. They served in the tabernacle. They were in the place of the light. They were place of the illumination. They were in the place where the scriptures were, where the law was, where the presence of God was, where the glory was, where they had all the... All the offerings that ought to have made them thoughtful and holy. They had a good father in the main. It's true he wasn't perfect. He should have put them out of office. But nevertheless he did rebuke them. And there was something of grace in his life. And they must have witnessed it. But I think the greatest evidence of the light and illumination and the privilege that they had is in their names. Constantly repeated. Hophni and Phineas are names that express the hope of their father who give them those names. Hophni seems to be derived from the word hands enclosed or hollow hands or fist enclosed, clenched hands. And some have thought that that means a fighter, boxer. But I don't think that's the meaning of the name. Because I think the meaning of the name is it encloses something. It, the hollow holds something. So the father gives this to Hophni because Hophni is probably to be the high priest after he goes, Eli dies. And the high priest's hands are very important. They carry the incense in, you see. In fact, the Bible talks about Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, make an atonement for himself, And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord. And his hands full. The name Hophni is derived from that word hands. His hands full. His hands enclosing fullness. Full of incense. His hands will be full of incense beaten small. And he'll bring it within the veil. And the father probably gave him the name. In the expectation that one day he would have his hands full of incense and holy hands that he would bring within the veil and as he serves God. That was done on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, you read about it. And Hophni's name is, is derived from that word hands. So there was the expectation that this son would be a, an instrument of righteousness. And his hands would be hands of 
service to God and holy hands. He would be lifting up holy hands and carrying holy hands full of incense, especially on the day of atonement. So the firstborn got this fame. As for the name Phineas, you know where that came from. Is the name of the great ancestor, isn't it, Phineas? The grandson of Aaron. That God-fearing man who, who rose up from the congregation with great zeal from, for God, with a javelin in his hand, and halted the divine wrath from coming on Israel. Zeal for God, zeal for righteousness, zeal for the congregation. Others wept and cried. But Phineas arose and did something. And God wrote about him with honor in his word. Phineas had turned away my wrath from Israel, he said. And this is a name that that Eli gave to to this lad. A son who would turn away the wrath from Israel. He did the very opposite, didn't he? He brought the wrath. He's turned away my wrath from the children of Israel. He was zealous for my sake amongst the people of God that I didn't consume them. And I give unto him my covenant of peace. Oh, God loved Phineas in in the book of Numbers. And so Eli had high, high hopes of this son Phineas. Giving him that name. The day the son was born. And no doubt Phineas heard that story. And he knew about his great ancestor. And he was told about it often. And I'm sure he read and heard about it frequently. But alas. He is like so many. A dull hearer. Of God's word. Who didn't benefit. Spiritually or eternally from it. His life was not inspired by Holy Scripture. But rather he rebelled against all that his name stood for and played the apostate and brought the very plague of wrath on Israel by his wickedness. And so these, both these men, for whom Eli had high hope and for whom he must have prayed often, we never know how our children will turn out. We never do. But we should continue to pray that they may be the true saints of God. So these, these boys are enemies of all truth and righteousness. They had good names, but bad lives. It's not enough to have a good name, brethren and sisters. We have to have good lives too. And also they had a sad end. How horrible and terrible is the death of the impenitent. The wicked all die differently too, but they never die like the righteous. There is hope in the death of the righteous, as we'll see with Eli and the daughter-in-law. There's hope in the death of the righteous, but not in the death of the wicked. The righteous sleep in Jesus, but the wicked are cut off, slain, Samuel is the book of cutting off. Dagon's parts are cut off. Goliath's head is cut off. The idols 
and the idolaters are cut off. The skirt of Saul's robe is cut off. The Lord cuts off the wicked. The Bible says to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. And they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. So the kind of the end of these men should cause unrepentant sinners to think. And those who go on in their wicked ways and do not seek God's forgiveness should be called to think by a chapter like this. It is a warning beacon to them but it is also a warning beacon to us congregation as well to be true, to be sincere in our faith in Christ. Remember, these are the men of the congregation. These are the leaders of the people of God. These are the priests. They are warning beacons to us that we ought to be sincere in our faith in Christ and not turn away from the Lord I'm not apostatize. I'm not going away of wickedness. Stubborn, impenitent wickedness. But humbly and daily seek cleansing and grace that we might continue to walk in a way of holiness. So they're warning beacons to us. The closing word at the end of verse 11 then tells us the fruit and the end of apostasy. Apostasy brings death and destruction. The whole defeat of Israel and the slaughter of multitudes culminating in the death of the priests is a witness of the cost of Israel and its priests leaving God. There's a cost in apostasy. There's a cost in turning away from God. Apostasy not only brings death to the apostates, it brings a curse on the nation. And it often leads to war. War comes out of the nations that forget God and turn away from God and think that they will build a utopia without God. War comes to such people to humble them and to judge them. And that's what's happening here. The best thing political and religious leaders can do for a nation is to obey God and keep his commandments. And the worst thing political leaders or religious leaders can do for a nation is to turn from God and to do wickedly. That's the lesson of, of the death of these two men. We don't want apostasy to lead us into war, I can tell you. Now we may get very arrogant in the West, and we think we may just go into war, and we win the war. That's not always the case. I wouldn't want to be led into war by apostasy. Either apostate political leaders or religious leaders. We could very well lose that war. And it will be a great cost. So you see why we have to pray for the peace. Sin always brings forth death. And that's the lesson of the first half of this chapter. 
While the end of the wicked prayer is passed over pretty quickly, it's not so with the description of the other prayer. Their deaths are given in detail. Practically the whole of the second half is about their deaths. Eli's in verses 12 to 18. And the daughter-in-law, the mother of Ichabod, in verses 19 to 22. Long accounts. They're a better prayer. They die too. And their dying is most horrific. We know that Eli, he fell backwards and broke his neck and died. And his daughter-in-law, well, you know how that was. She went into childbearing and whatever happened, the child was born okay, but she passed away in childbearing. A terrible death. And her mother dies having given birth to a lively child. However, there is hope in their deaths. There's found some good thing in these two. They did not die as fools die. They did not die as the foolish priests died who were cut off and slain. They died in some respects of grief and a broken heart. That's why they died. They died because of something good in them. Before Eli's neck broke and before the waters of the daughter-in-law broke in a birth that led to her death that breach was brought about by a broken heart as well as the neck broken on Eli by a broken heart. His heart broke before his neck broke. That's the truth. So their deaths are not the same. They die because of the bad news. Yes, grief at the defeat of the army. That is true. Grief at the great slaughter of Israel's warriors. Yes, grief at the death of two sons and a husband. Yes, grief for all of that. But the heartbreaking grief was this. The ark of God was gone. That was a, the weirdest thing of all to them. And that's what brought the death. That's what brought the trouble. The glory was departed. The presence of God was gone. When she says the glory is gone, she's saying the Lord is gone. Yes, the ark was taken. But they saw beyond that the Lord was, was gone. The Lord was exiled. That grief killed them. We read there in verse 13. Eli's heart trembled for the ark. We're looking at his heart now. We're looking inside. The Holy Spirit's giving him a view inside. Which is to be noted. His heart trembled for the ark. He didn't want the ark to go. But what can he say? All Israel wanted it to go. He trembled. He knew it wasn't going to be good. He feared. And then the messenger said, Israel's fled before the people. There's a great slaughter. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God is taken. That's the last word of the messenger. That's the climax. 
And the Bible says it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that he fell from off the seat. Backward on his neck break and he died. When he heard the ark was taken, the shock, and he fell backwards. And then the daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child, near to be delivered, verse 19. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, that's the first thing, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. She bowed herself and travailed. Her pains came upon her. You see, she went into travail because of that news, that shock. And it's all in her mind, this ark business. And she's lost hope and she's lost life and the child's born and the women are trying to encourage her to pick up her spirit and they say, you've got a boy here. And all, all, all she can think of, Ichabod, Ichabod, the glory's gone. The glory's, that's all she ever talks about. The glory's gone, the, the, it's departed, the ark's been taken. She keeps repeating it. And the very child is named because of it. You can see some good in their hearts, can't you? They love the Lord. The Lord's gone. They miss God's presence. Yes, you missed her husband. Yes, you missed her father-in-law. But no ark in the tent of God. That really eat at her. I'm sure that these two people had a thousand faults, but we know Eli had many faults. We've mentioned some of them. His daughter-in-law, she might have fooled. So she's not perfect either. But there's this good thing about them. They love the Lord. You know, there are multitudes who go to church in our land. But if tomorrow Christianity was reduced to nothing, they would hardly even mourn. It wouldn't hardly matter. If you took away their Bible from them, they wouldn't drop a tear because if they hardly read it or look at it anyway and they're not interested in it, it wouldn't hardly matter. If they were cut off for the means of grace, life would just go on the same for them. But not for the God-fearing. Not for Eli. He can't live without the glory of God, without the ark. Not for Phineas' wife. Yeah, she has a boy, but she can't live without the Lord's presence. They had their faults. But we could say Christ is all in all to them. They love the Lord. Their heart shows it. There's some good thing in them. If the Lord were to go, would we die? I don't know about you, but sometimes the thought has gripped me. What if it's not all true? This Christianity. Has that ever gripped you when the devil's really brought it along? What if it's not all true? And doesn't your heart sink? Does it nearly drop into despair at the thought? Of the darkness of it. Our hearts would disintegrate if Christianity was proved false. You remember Mary? Love weeping at the tomb. The heartbroken woman that we adore so much. She run to Peter and John and she said, they've taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre and we know not where they have led him. And then later on when everybody else goes away, she, she stood without at the sepulchre weeping. 
And as she wept, she stooped down and she kept looking into the empty sepulchre, trying to figure it all out, trying to wonder where the body had been taken. And then she, she hears a voice, Woman, why weepest thou? She says, they've taken, they've taken away my Lord. I know not where they've led him. Then the gardener speaks to her, Tell me where you've led him. If you, and I'll come and take him away myself. She's just heartbroken. She's ready to die almost. Uh, this is a grief like that, I think, in Eli and the daughter-in-law. Would it break our hearts not to hear the preaching of Christ anymore? Not to have the presence of Christ anymore? Not to see him in his word anymore? To lose his smile? To not hear his voice? We do love him that first loved us, but oh, that we might love him as Mary, that we might love him as Eli, that we might love him as this mother in Israel. She so loved him that she gave her child that awful name. Who would ever call their child this? Do you anybody know anybody called Ichabod? <laughs> you wouldn't dare give it to a child. And yet she does. And not only does she give it to the child, it's written everywhere in the land. And it's still written today everywhere in the land. And there are plenty of churches about it and they're sitting outside the church. Ichabod. It's a well-known name for those who can see through the glasses of Holy Scripture. Many churches have it written over them. Many denominations have it written over them. Written and yet none to mourn. But let us mourn, congregation. The surest way of not having Ichabod written on our door is to be a people that mourn. Mourning our sins. Mourning the sins of the land. Lest we ourselves get this name, let us mourn our sins. Let us mourn our sins more than we lambast the sins of others. Let us lambast the sins of others, but let us never do it in a way that we don't mourn our own sins. In closing, let me point out, there is in this chapter one who lives. One who survives. Not just the child, I'm not talking about the child, the newborn, bless God, where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound, a new life can come, a newborn gives hope of a new day. But there's someone else in the chapter who lives. The man in the middle. The Benjamite. The man who left the battlefield, who left slaying Hophni and Phineas, made his journey to Shiloh and witnessed these two deaths as well, leaving one scene of death to enter another scene of death, yet he does not die, he lives. He surveys both places. The message bearer. The faithful message bearer. The bearer of the word. The bearer of the tidings, even though it was bad tidings. He lives. And he lives wearing the garments of mourning. 
The garments of humiliation, the garments of repentance. What does it say there in verse 12? The same day he came out of the army and came to Shiloh. Everybody else, you know, went to their tents. You know what that means? That's just a phrase in the Bible that means they left the army, they left the battlefield and they just went away. This man didn't flee to his tent. This man went back to warn Shiloh. And it was good that they got warning because the, the Philistines made their way there and destroyed Shiloh. Which is another story in itself. We don't read about it in Samuel. But 20 miles after being in the battle all day in a great slaughter he still made haste covered the 20 miles the same day a faithful messenger with the tidings. And notice his clothes rent. He's running along the way, tearing his clothes. See, when a Hebrew does not, they're, they're, they're saying how they feel in here. Their heart's torn. Their heart's broken. So they tear their clothes. It's just something in Hebrew blood. They just tear their clothes. They rent their clothes and they throw the dirt on top of themselves. They cover themselves in the mud and the dust. Broken hearted. Mourning. But he makes the 20 miles. To give the warning. No pride here. Only humility. And in humility is repentance. And in repentance. True repentance. Is faith in Christ. And where that is. There is life. There is life. And this man lives. While others die. Now some have thought that this man is Saul. I think that unlikely. But whatever the mourner lives. What did our Lord Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. For they shall be comforted. It's in the sackcloth and ashes that we catch God's eye, congregation. It's in the beating upon our own breasts and the renting our own clothes and the tearing our own heart. And in mourning before God, ask him for forgiveness and cleansing and pardon and mercy. It's in that that we live. Sackcloth and ashes catches the eye of God. Rent garments and dirt upon us catches God's eye. And if we catch his eye, we receive his mercy. To this man will I look. To him that is of a poor and contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Isn't that word in the chapter? His heart trembled. There are trembling lives, there are trembling men and women in the chapter. And this Benjamite is a trembling man. To him I look. I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Do we want revival? Well, we want revival, don't we? This is the path. The 20 miles that this man run is the path. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. And save us such as be of a contrite spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou will not despise. They don't tell you that much in evangelical churches today. 
the sacrifices of God. There's a lot of other things people say for that. But the Holy Spirit says, a broken spirit, a humble heart, a feeling that you're the only and the greatest sinner in the world. Like that publican, standing afar off, who would not as much as lift up his eyes unto heaven, but smote on his breast. I tell you, Jesus says, this man made his journey home justified. He was alive. He was alive. He lived. The Pharisee didn't live. He was dead. Praying his orthodox prayers, but dead. Wearing his orthodox clothes, but dead. At the front of his orthodox service, but dead. Yes, these are some of the thoughts that we draw from this chapter. There are many more, no doubt. But I trust that there's enough there to minister to you with the Lord's blessing.